You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 571 of this podcast. Today is Friday. March 3rd, 2023. And in this episode, we've got some maybe different ways to look at the question of the average size of a U.S. family and also what maybe would need to change if we were going to encourage more American families, I speak as an American, more American families to have more kids. What needs to change? What goes into that? What are the stats in recent decades and even over the past century? But before we do, before we get into that, I want to start us off, as I said I would, with some reading of Scripture. So where we left off last time I read Scripture in my podcast, our last episode, (laughs) uh, was the end of Exodus chapter 14. So we're going to go ahead and pick up Exodus 15 and read for a bit and then take a look at current events items. Starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone." till your people, O Yahweh, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, 
which your hands have established, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, and you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. 
And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people of Israel rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years, till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place 
Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. Amen. That, my friends, was Exodus 15 through 17 to the end of 17. We'll pick back up with Exodus chapter 18 when next we continue. But let's key in on some of the things here. For one, you have the examples, the anecdotes of Israel grumbling against Moses and Aaron continually, repeatedly. After everything they've been through, after everything they've seen, the people of Israel continue to grumble. And at one point, their grumbling is apparently so heated that Moses wonders if they are about to try and put him to death. And the accusations are not meek and mild at all from Israel. They are accusations of bad faith. You have led us out here to die. Why did you bring us out here? And I find it fascinating. It's just delightful that the response of Moses is, you're not grumbling against us. Like, Let's just be clear. Take it up with God, right? It's God you're actually grumbling against. I'm just the messenger. I've been telling you what God told me to tell you. I've been doing what God told me to do. If you have a problem with that, your real problem at root is with the God who sent me to you, the God who delivered you out of Egypt. You're really grumbling against him. And that's true. That's true. It's a very important thing that we would recognize that sometimes when we have complaints, those complaints might seem very justified, particularly if we're hangry, right? So there might be a little bit of hanger here, hungry anger here on the part of the people of Israel. If you're thirsty, I'm not getting my food. I'm not getting my water, not getting my rest. That's the real test of where your heart is at. And that also is part of why we fast as Christians. And it's not just Christians who fast, but when Christians fast in particular, we fast in a particular way because that's when it's really revealed what is going on in our heart, where our affections are ordered. Do we love God more than we love food? Do we love God more than we love drink? Do we love God more than we love anything and anyone else? 
when we feel that what we love in terms of things or relationships is threatened, that's when you find out. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Think of the prayer of Solomon later on, well after the events recorded here in Exodus. But think of Solomon praying for wisdom and God saying, because you have asked for this, I will give you all these other things as well. This is a recurring theme with God. He wants obedience rather than sacrifice because sacrifice sometimes can be a cover for sin. And I say that and you might say, well, no, duh, Garrett. But I mean, think of indulgences in the Middle Ages. Think of what really riled Martin Luther in the first place to launch the Protestant Reformation, the calls to Rome for repentance. It was the preaching of Tetzel regarding indulgences. And it was such a mercenary thing that people were buying indulgences in advance of committing sins that they wanted to. So it was premeditated. They were treating grace in a very cheap way. So was the Roman Catholic Church. And that was an abomination. But what is better? To regard grace as a very, very precious thing. And to, yes, rest in it. Yes, rely on it. But not to abuse it. Not to pervert the understanding of grace that other people around us are going to have. We don't sin that grace might abound all the more, even though where there is sin, he gives more grace. God will not be mocked. And that, my friends, is mocking God. There's grumbling against God. There's also mocking God. Now, it's funny to me with regards to the children of Israel that the grumbling comes to something of a quick stop when Moses and Aaron reframe what's actually at root here. You're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against God. God is the one who brought you out of Egypt. God is the one who told us to tell you the things that we told you. You saw with your own eyes. We're not just making it up. You saw the wonders he performed. You saw him destroy Pharaoh and his chariots in the Red Sea. You saw that. You sang a big, long song about it, in fact. All of the women sang and danced with tambourines. It was a big to-do. That was just a, a, just a few days ago. What is this? And then they stow it, right? <laughs> They're like, oh. But this is obedience training that God is putting his people through. It is also a test to see who is genuine and who actually loves him and who actually trusts him. And those who won't, they're going to have a bad outcome. They just are. It is not going to end well for them. It will be known whether they are actually Israel or whether they are false. If they are not his people, then there will be consequences. But right now, even those who are mixed in, those who are not necessarily wanting to be his people, it looks like, at every turn, at every challenge, not trusting him, not obeying you know, alternating between when it's very, very fresh in their minds, his deliverance, singing his praises, and then turning right around at the next challenge or the next test, and seeming to have completely forgotten everything that they've seen to this point, everything that they've heard to this point, everything that they've been through to this point. It's remarkable how quickly we forget, how quickly when we're hungry or thirsty or when we're not getting what we want, how quickly we forget. 
What does God do? He sends manna and he gives instruction to Moses that brings water from a rock in one case and also turns bitter, undrinkable water at Mara into sweet water, water that you actually can consume. You can drink it. And next thing you know, next thing you know, they find 12 springs and 70 palms. And those palms probably have something else as well, besides just proof that there's enough water to support that many trees. Those palms are shade as well, right? So we look at this and I think we do well to be students of our own hearts, as the Puritans would say. Consider, ponder, take a good long look in the mirror and see whether this isn't you as well, whether this isn't me as well, whether this isn't our neighbors and our family and our friends and our coworkers and our community and our churches even, that we're so quick to complain and to grumble against God, first and foremost. Now you say, probably, if you've been listening to my podcast for any amount of time, and towards the end of the episode, we will be talking about problems. Talking about problems is not the same thing as grumbling against God, to be very, very clear. If it were, it would be odd that all of these problems are described in such detail in the book of Exodus. Even to talk about the grumbling is to talk about a problem. It's a problem that they're grumbling. To talk about the problem is not grumbling. But if the attitude is one where there is no trust, there is no trust in God to provide and to protect, and there is no contentment and no trust for his servants, then that's that's a problem. That is grumbling, right? So we have to distinguish these things. You have to be able to talk about such problems in order to put a stop to the grumbling, whether because there is something you can do that you should do, or whether because you need to keep silent and watch what the Lord is going to do on your behalf for his name's sake to fulfill his promises. I also find interesting, not just the food and water and shade and the grumbling, you know, these practical problems, very, very practical problems. I also find interesting the battle between Israel and Amalek. And you might say, I've never heard of Amalek. And I would say, well, it looks like God kept his promise. (laughs) That's what I conclude. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Except in your word, it, it would appear so. It would appear that we are not talking about them and we don't know much about them. And for all we know, they were really strong and powerful at one time until God wiped them from the face of the earth. And that is a sobering thought. If you are potentially under wrath instead of under grace, it's an encouraging thought. If you are under grace and your enemies are strong and powerful and they look like they could overwhelm you and destroy you. It's an encouraging thought that if God fights for you and if God gives you victory, you really will have a victory, regardless of how strong your enemy is. That's the point. Look to God either way. But it's curious, right? It's curious that we have side by side the picture of Yahweh God as provider, food, water, shade even, 
It's subtle, but it's there. And on the other hand, a protector, protecting his people from Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. But he's not doing everything for them. He does want them to participate. He wants them to go out and gather, for instance. Go gather the manna. Go gather the quail. Also, he wants them to not do any work whatsoever on the Sabbath. That is supposed to be a rest day. He commanded it. Also, interestingly, he wants them to live day by day. So when they gather, they're not supposed to store and hoard. He wants them to trust him and rely on him every single day for their provision. And so it's a curious thing. For instance, when they are at the bitter pool where the water is just not drinkable because it's so bitter, it's contaminated with something, it would seem. Very shortly after that, they find 12 springs. And so you could ask, well, why didn't they just find those 12 springs in the first place without coming to the pool with the bitter water first? And the point is because God wanted to test them. Also, God knew what they were made of. And so they could have taken a much more direct route. And it says that very clearly in the text, but they would have melted away. They weren't prepared. They were not going to be obedient and faithful, sufficient to see battle so soon. And so they were taken through the wilderness instead. One wonders, there's a part of me that wonders anyways, whether all of Israel knew that they were being taken out of Egypt permanently. I I do wonder that. If everybody was aware, hey, we're going out to the wilderness because we're going to go to the promised land. We're going to keep on marching to the promised land. Was that common knowledge? Did some people know? Did everybody know? Did the elders know? And they, they just, well, okay, <clears throat> maybe we won't let them know until we're on our way, that we're not coming back. Based on their responses, either they're pretending that they didn't know that full well before they left, because now they're having buyer's remorse and they want to renege. Or they didn't know. And now they're finding out as they go, hey, wait a second, where where are we headed? Egypt's that way, isn't it? You know, I mean, they probably get a clue when Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen come after them and are killed in the Red Sea. I mean, it's going to be a, a little challenging to go back after that. But then again, maybe there's a part of them that's thinking with Pharaoh out of the way, with the chariots and the horsemen drowned in the Red Sea. Maybe we should go back to Egypt and just take over Egypt like they've been afraid of for centuries. That's conjecture, I admit. That's speculative. But still, there's all kinds of things that could be going through the individual minds of the children of Israel here. And yet, that's not what God had in mind. That's not what he planned. There were battles to fight. There were fights. But that was not the one that he had for them. His leading them out by the word of Moses and Aaron through a wilderness route, providing for them, protecting them, giving them obedience training as a people before bringing them into the promised land. It's very, very interesting to recognize that as being the character of God. Also, God's way of relating to nations in the Old Testament. Let's just ask the question here. Let's ask it. 
Does God relate to nations at all, at all like this anymore? And if not, why not? I mean, as an honest question, if you've got a good argument biblically for where he said he would no longer relate to nations this way, I'll hear it. But it's not just that he displays his power in favor of Israel. It's also that he displays his power against Egypt or Amalek to punish them and for all the other nations to see that he has punished them or to wipe the memory of them, to blot out the memory of them from under heaven, like in the case of Amalek. Very curious. If he does, which I don't see any reason why he wouldn't, if he does still relate to nations in this way, nations and peoples, what are our comparables for the nations of today? What might we expect either with hope or with trepidation, depending on where we reside and what our nation, what our people is about? Some thoughts, right? Some thoughts to consider. Now let's move on. Let's get into some of the material here, current events wise. How dare I have <laughs> vindicated John Stewart, who long ago declared COVID came from Wuhan lab, rips critics. Here is a little write-up from Joseph Curl over at the Daily Wire published yesterday. John Stewart, as you may recall, was the host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. It was uh, satirical. You know, it, it was fake news, right? It, it was, for liberals, the... Babylon B, you know, for those of you who are too young to know much about The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I used to watch it back in the day, back when we had cable. I would watch it occasionally. I thought Jon Stewart was fairly funny, even when I didn't agree with his politics. I've seen him as being an honest participant. I, I see him as being somebody who I just genuinely disagree with, but I think he's, I think he's genuine in his positions. I think he's wrong. You know, somebody could be sincere and they could be sincerely wrong, but at least the sincere part is something and I can admire the sincerity, but he did. He, he did say early on that it looks like this came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So I'm going to play a clip. I'm going to play a clip of John Stewart. Take a listen. Here's cut one. The Department of Energy came out with a report saying that they have, they said, low confidence, but that uh, the COVID-19 was a result of a lab leak. Uh, Are you you trying to get me canceled again? (laughs) (laughs) I've I've gotten so many texts being like, is John gloating? Do you feel vindicated? (laughs) No, there is no. First of all. I, I wasn't waiting for the Department of Energy to wait. Right. You know, like, that's one of those. You were, like, you were refreshing yeah, the Department of Energy feed. What, what, what is the Department of Energy? With I'm, low confidence. It's it's not about certainty or the, the larger problem with all of this is the inability to discuss things that are within the realm of possibility without falling into absolutes and litmus testing each other for uh, our political allegiances as it arose from that. My, my bigger problem with, with that was I thought it was a pretty good bit that expressed kind of how I felt. And the two things that came out of it were I'm racist against Asian people and how dare I align myself with the alt-right. 
And I thought, well, that's such a peculiar, you know, and for those of you who, who don't know what we're talking about, and God, <laughs> God bless you if you don't. Uh, I had gone on Stephen Colbert's show. Uh, Stephen is a, a young up and coming uh, <laughs> improv actor uh, with the program. He'll make it. And, and just really very wide hips, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> but the, the point was I was doing a bit about, and it was similar to a bit I've done on religion. I used to do a bit about religion, saying religion's given comfort to a world torn apart by religion. So the idea was, uh, you know, about the vaccines and other things that science had uh, truly helped heal a world from a pandemic, uh, probably called by science. And then I proceeded to go on a kind of a long tangent about why that, why I thought that. Um, and the backlash was swift, uh, immediate, and yes, uh, quite loud. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I didn't take that personally either. Like, we live in a world where, like, I have my opinion. I'm not mad at the backlash either because they're doing what I was doing, which is expressing myself. The part that I don't like about it is the the absolutes and the dismissive. That's right. That's right. I mean, I would respectfully disagree with him on the absolutes. We do need to have absolutes. We have to. If you don't have absolutes, then this is what you get. You, you get, without moral constraints, people thinking that the ends always justify the means. If you can make some tenuous argument that this is for the greater good or national security or world peace, literally anything and everything will be done. And you can just say at some future point, this will all add up uh, for the good. You know, that kind of an argument doesn't work with Joseph and his brothers, except insofar as God does work all things to the good. So he gets the credit for working them to the good. You, if you are being corrupt and wicked, you will get consequences, right? Joseph's brothers did a bad thing and there were consequences for that. By God's grace, we can endure, but we shouldn't sin that grace might abound all the more. We shouldn't. So the absolutes have to be there. The absolutes being whatever God says, that's absolutely what we should do. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And if God's offered us grace where we have sinned and fallen short and there is enmity between us and God, we should absolutely avail ourselves of that grace and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We do need absolutes here. We absolutely need absolutes. (laughs) But where there's incomplete knowledge, where we're trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened so that we are able to hold our elected representatives accountable or so that we are able to protect ourselves, humanly speaking, that's when it's a huge problem that to talk about potentialities the way that John Stewart was, the way that I was, the way that plenty of people like us were, was met with so much hostility, so much grumbling. It's like, okay, it's either true what we're putting out there, putting forward, suggesting, implying, or it's not true. But if it is true, then your beef is not actually with me. If I'm just telling you the truth, that this is a possibility, your beef isn't with me. Your beef is with that as a possibility that is disturbing and it really upsets your paradigm. That's really what's causing this tumultuous exchange and reaction from you. Not so dissimilar, and I'm not saying it's a one-to-one, 
But just in terms of being a student of human nature, being a student of our own hearts, our own affections, also having some familiarity with human nature generally, there are some parallels with the response of the children of Israel when they find themselves wondering where their next meal is going to come from or what they're going to drink or when Pharaoh and his armed forces are bearing down on them. Immediately what they want to do is to go back to what is familiar, even though it was bad, even though it sucked. They want to go back to what's familiar because they know what to expect there. They think, but there's no going back. There's no going back. So you get to the moment we're at, and the question should be asked, what would be the proper response moving forward, the proper mentality, the proper attitude going forward? I think that the proper response ought not to be, let's try and pretend that everything's going back to normal the way that it used to be. Yeah, it was bad. It wasn't so good, but you know, we know what to expect there. No, there's no going back. There's no going back. But if you want to move forward in a blessed way, trusting God, the current economic environment and forecasting looks pretty bleak. And so you have a lot of people who are having a harder time affording groceries, paying their utilities. You have the people who are in the position of Pharaoh telling the people of the world to make bricks without straw. And there's a kind of contempt there. And they have a very similar attitude towards the people that they rule over to what Pharaoh had when he commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill every baby boy born alive, or when he, that not working, told all of the Egyptians to throw every baby boy of the Hebrews into the Nile. They have a very similar way of assessing and calculating costs and benefits, unfortunately. But here's the silver lining, if you will. If we have some pharaohs type people. And if we have some children of Israel who grumble every time there's a challenge, God is still God. And so what pleased him in all of this that we're reading about in Exodus and what would please him in terms of our orientation, our attitude, our trust in him? What has he called us to? We are not Israel. I mean, unless you're Jewish, we are not Israel. I'm not Israel, but I am the new Israel, in some sense, or part of that, or grafted in as a Christian in Christ, adopted in. So what has God called us to? How is he going to provide for us? How is he going to protect us? How should we be expectant? Also, when he tells us to fight, how should we fight? When he tells us to keep silent and just watch while he fights for us, are we prepared to do that and to be peaceable and to rest that he will do that? These are important things to consider. You know, a, a strong influence in this whole John Stewart, Wuhan Institute of Virology, origin story that has played out across American society over the past three years. A strong influence is the fear that many have of China, angering China, offending China, fighting more to the point China. 
Our leaders are afraid to fight China, and also they're afraid to lose out on access to Chinese markets, both and. I say, even if China is stronger than the U.S., right now or in the near future, or it's close, again, consider God drowning Pharaoh and his chariots and charioteers and horsemen in the Red Sea. If God fights for us, then we can't lose. If God is not with us, then I think we are under judgment. And it's a coin toss. But what will be is exactly what God wants to be. And we should be expectant that he will have some things for us to do and he will have some things for us to not do accordingly. Now, moving on. Speaking of World War III, Mr. Retrops, not his real name, I presume, over at notthebee.com, published a piece here about a week ago, a little bit over a week ago, February 25th. New study says World War II-style rationing of food, fuel, clothing, and other goods is what we need to stop climate change, and it's already happening. Now, there's a clip here. I'll, pre- I'll, I'll play for you. I mean, I'll pray for you, too. It was not necessarily a slip of the tongue that I need to apologize for. I will not apologize if I pray for you. But there's a clip here I'll play for you. This will be cut two of Bernie Sanders back in the day, speaking well of breadlines and food rationing. And this will give you perhaps something of an idea of what the left is prepared to accept and even embrace here in the United States of America. Like I said, take a listen. Here's cut two. You know, it's funny, sometimes American journalists talk about how bad a country is because people are lining up for food. That's a good thing. In other countries, people don't line up for food. The rich get the food and the poor starve to death. Envy the country that has heroes! I say pity the country that needs them. Okay, all right. Uh, Maybe that was cut two and three. Uh, If you're not familiar with the movie Reign of Fire, starring Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale, uh, also Gerard Butler, he plays a secondary role. But if you're not familiar with that movie, you should definitely check it out. Great, great movie. One of my favorites. Some might say it is a classic. And by some, I mean myself. I love that movie. But why I play that back to back with the Bernie Sanders bit about food lines breadlines in the Soviet Union in particular is he can say it's a good thing that these people aren't starving to death. And this is where I go back to, I just keep saying again and again and talking with my hands and hitting my desk accidentally, it would seem the or else the or else is critically important. Wisdom has to do with being able to do compare and contrasts that are meaningful and then making decisions accordingly Food lines or starving to death, yes, choose food lines. Choose bread lines over starving to death. Food lines or being able to produce your own food in sufficient quantity and also have an income sufficient from doing gainful employment type work that you can just go buy your food in the quantities and varieties and types at the times that you want to from the grocery store 
when when you compare food lines to that, well, uh, most of us would choose being able to go to the grocery store and just buy what we want and what we need as we need it, as we want it. Again, though, let's loop this in with Exodus. Consider with me the reason why God is giving them a day's worth of manna at a time and then causing it to spoil and to stink and to produce worms if they keep it over until the next day, with the exception being the Sabbath. Consider with me what I said before about that being obedience training for the people of Israel. They are being taught to depend on God so that they obey God, so that they trust God, so that they do what God is going to tell them to do, and they don't do what God is going to tell them not to do. He's putting them in situations where he will fight for them and he will protect them and he will provide for them so that they trust in him, so that they obey him, so that they serve him faithfully. When people put you in a position on purpose, deliberately, to where you are dependent on them for your daily bread, it is, it is exactly the same. It is for the exact same purpose. They are playing God. And beware. Beware, lest you love this life so much that you would start to worship them and take your cues from them before you take your cues from God, before you worship God. Beware. There is a real spiritual hazard, not just a physical hazard, but first and foremost, a spiritual hazard here that we would become so dependent for our daily bread on the left in particular, the Bernie Sanders types in particular, that when they tell us even to do what God tells us not to do or to not do what God tells us to do, in the interest of being able to eat today, we're on the horns of a dilemma and we obey man rather than God. Beware. And to Van Zant's point, Van Zant is the Matthew McConaughey character in Reign of Fire, the one who says, Pity the country that needs him. Envy the country that has heroes. Pity the country that needs him. That pregnant pause on his part where the castle full of Brits is cheering and celebrating and drinking and just all so happy that they've been saved by these Americans with their tanks and their helicopters and their guns and their fighting spirit, because you got to have that when it's time to fight. I love the cut to Christian Bales looking disgusted and seeming to anticipate what's about to be said next. This is a lead-in. Van Zandt's going to say something that's cutting. And he's going to try, and he does, to recruit the fighting men from Christian Bale's castle. And Christian Bale doesn't want that. He wants to hunker down. He wants to have a defensive posture. He wants to turtle. He wants to stay right here in this closed community. And if we're here, we're safe. And we'll just wait. We'll see what happens. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll fix itself. And it doesn't. And they have to go to the heart of where these dragons are. And they have to kill the main dragon, the big dragon that is spawning these other dragons. They've got to do that if they want this to get better. Again, a great, great movie. Fantastic movie. The or else is very important. If the or else is 
either we stay in this castle, we hunker down, or we die. Well, then maybe you stay in the castle. But if the or else is, you go out there and you take the fight to the enemy, and you take the risk, and you engage aggressively, or you die. Well, when you put it in those terms, people will fight. Men will fight like never before. This is a maxim of strategy that Sun Tzu speaks to. Also, Robert Greene in his 33 Strategies of War speaks to it. We need to know it. We need to be familiar with it. Now, I'm going to play, I suppose it's cut four at this point, of Alibaba Group President J. Michael Evans boasting at the WEF about the development of an individual carbon footprint tracker to monitor what you buy, what you eat, where you travel, how you travel. Take a listen. Here's cut four. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. That was May 24th, 2022, just so you know. More recently, Climate Realist on Twitter, at Climate Realists, tweeted out a article from dailymail.co.uk. Supermarkets ration fruit and veg as shelves empty in supply shortage. Their write-up on their tweet out is, Supermarkets ration fruit and veg as shelves empty in supply shortage as the limits shoppers to three items each as UK farmers switch off greenhouses amid soaring energy costs and Europe is hit by perfect storm of growing issues. I am on Reddit and one of the Reddits that I follow is r slash Europe. And there was a post just the other day of a magazine cover all about this issue, this problem. The New European is the name of the magazine, unless this is entirely made up. Supposedly, the New European issue 331, March 2nd to 8, 2023. There's a picture of a container of radishes, it looks like. And this is a cartoon, bear in mind. But there's a piece of paper with some writing on it in this container of radishes. And it says, premium specialty Brexit variety tomatoes. $79.99. The headline underneath says, let them eat sovereignty. You say tomatoes, we say the Brexit food crisis hasn't even started yet by Jaunty Bloom. And so I got engaged. I commented and I said, if this is implying that Brexit makes international trade of food impossible, I say that's highly disingenuous and dishonest and misleading. You know, what has more to do with it is the EU's climate change policies being leveraged by the Dutch government, for instance, to push thousands of farmers off their farms. What has more to do with it is the situation in Ukraine. But the claim that the UK exiting the EU and 
opting for a return to national sovereignty, independence, making their own laws, their own rules, self-determination, doing what they believe is best, a move away from globalism, to claim that that, therefore, is the reason why there's a food shortage is highly disingenuous, highly disingenuous, very dishonest. This is about control. It's about obedience training. And it's about making an example of those who are pushing back on the push for global communism. In the name of world peace, all who object will be silenced one way or another. Moving on, a funnier story in some ways, kind of sort of, maybe it depends on your sense of humor. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee two weeks ago published this piece, this story about a metal detectorist suing the FBI, claiming he reported seven tons of Civil War era gold that they then proceeded to steal out from under him. Now, apparently this story has been out there for several years, but it's back in the news cycle. And I'm going to go ahead and play another clip. This one explaining his explaining what happened here or what he believes happened here, what he maintains happened here. And you can judge for yourself if this seems potentially credible, totally not credible. Here is cut five. Take a listen. In the cave, there are mud bits, we call them. They're big ones. You know, I spent uh, seven years proving that the gold was in the ground. But we had drill bits like this made up 12 feet long. Of, uh, we brought them up here in the snow, set the GPL up, and set the test off, and the uh, machine lit up gold. I mean, it was bright. The light bulb almost blew out. I went back the day after they dug with all my equipment, and uh, we didn't get no more gold or silver readings. Noticing what we had seen before was some of the mass deficiency that we're starting to see evidence out there. We feel we were double-crossed and lied to. Uh, it could have come from here, or it could have come over here, the backfill. We don't know which one it is. You can't have... The uh, sun highlights shadows and no snow and say that was taken at 640 minutes before total darkness. You could hear the noise and I was like, and I looked and that whole hillside, I said, it was so bright. They had the biggest lights out there. I will never stop. I will stick at this until the end, until I know everything that happened to that gold. Okay. <clears throat> so there you go. Interesting story, right? I bring this up. I bring this to your attention. Why? Because this is the importance of absolutes. That if we don't have any absolutes, it's credible that there would be theft and lying and fraud and a cover-up, right? It's plausible. In fact, that's exactly what you would expect is if there are seven tons, and I, I can't even imagine how much that would be worth, seven tons of Civil War era gold, if there actually were that much gold there, and he did find it. And so maybe it's not his, but maybe he gets a finder's fee or he gets credit for it or something, right? If that is plausible, that it would just be taken in the middle of the night, secreted away, and then there would be some dishonesty about whether it was actually found or what have you. The fact that we don't know 
that we can trust our government and that this has kind of a plausibility to my way of thinking, it really does underscore the importance of absolutes and believing that there is such a thing as right and wrong. You know, also too, I mean, consider if you're in this guy's shoes, I mean, let's, let's suppose he's telling the truth so far as he knows. He did the tests. It really did look like there was gold. And then the FBI came in. And then as the allegation goes, they dug in the middle of the night, got the gold out of there and pretended that they didn't find anything. If he's right that there's seven tons of gold there and he would have even a small fraction of a share of that gold because he found it, you know, maybe the rest goes back to the U.S. government and it's worth just a ridiculous amount of money, right? Just an absurd amount. Would he just shrug? Would he just say, oh, whatever, win some, you lose some. That's a king's fortune. That's the find of the century. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And it makes me think of what Jesus says, that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure in a field and he sold all that he had to buy that field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is why I bring it up. Because you think about how hard a man will fight if he knows he's been robbed of seven tons of gold, Civil War era gold. And now consider all these other precious things that we have in God's word that speak to what has lasting value. You know, don't stir up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, which is to say that those are all real challenges, moths, rust, thieves, (laughs) like those are real things, real, real categories of challenges where accumulating wealth is concerned. But where are we supposed to store up our treasures? Where they're safe? With God, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. So what's going to last? What's going to endure? And do we have the tenacity, the drive, the commitment to what will endure? What is eternal, eternal riches, eternal life? Do we have the commitment that is necessary, that is fitting, that is appropriate for the promises that we have in God? That's my big question. Also, too, (laughs) in terms of government, in terms of like how we relate to the people who are supposed to be delivering justice, it's the Department of Justice. That's what the FBI is under. Do we trust that they know what justice is and that they're doing it, doing justice? You know, Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. I note that we do not have a Department of Mercy in the U.S. government, and that's as well may be, right? Not a complaint, just an observation. We also do not have a Department of Humility, interestingly enough, but we do have a Department of Justice, and insofar as the Department of Justice has given itself a bad reputation in recent years, politically motivated, being disingenuous, not always pursuing national security, strictly speaking, but hiding corruption behind claims of trying to protect national security, trying to protect the American people. That's something we should really pray about and hope changes and ask God in his word 
and in prayer for wisdom to know how to relate to. Moving on. New reactors could revive U.S. uranium mining and concerns about its toxic legacy. Ted McDermott, Lee Enterprises, published in the Billings Gazette, February 20th, 2023, updated February 27th, without even going through the whole article, because we're pressed for time here. We're coming up at the very end of this podcast, and I've got a few other things I want to get into before it's all said and done for today. It's curious to me that there is this drive from the world's leaders, from the WEF types, this drive from the top down to throttle back and even completely eliminate the use of fossil fuels for generating electricity and for fueling our vehicles. There's the push to go all electric, but then you're going to have to generate the electricity some way, somehow. Somebody says, well, we could generate electricity with nuclear power. And you have some who are radical environmentalists who say, well, no, we don't like that idea. What? Well, then how are we going to generate power? Here's another story. Michael Whitaker writing about the same time at the Daily Wire. Wind farm blamed for surge in dead whales on U.S. Atlantic coast. The concern here is that offshore wind farms might be potentially, possibly creating some kind of a noise or vibration that is interfering with the way that whales navigate. And so they are beaching themselves at an alarming rate compared with years past. And so then you have people here as well on the wind front. So wind is supposed to be this clean energy, but you have people who are going to say, well, then let's not do wind either. Yeah, that's, that's not so good. You know, you, you put them onshore and birds fly into them and get chopped up and they're expensive. And then what do you do with them when they wear out? There's a pollution aspect there as well. There's a cost aspect, cost consideration. How expensive are they to build, put into service, maintain, dispose of, recycle? Can you recycle them? So then the question is, how are we going to generate electricity? You know, what if we don't generate electricity through fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal? We don't generate electricity via wind farms. We don't generate electricity via nuclear power. How are we going to generate electricity? And the frank truth is that there are some who would answer, let's just not, let's just not generate electricity because of its environmental impact. And then you say, well, what about all the people who depend on electricity? They've electrified their homes. That's how they heat their homes. That's how they heat their food. That's how they preserve their food in refrigerators. That's how they watch TV or use their computer, record podcasts, listen to podcasts. And the chilling possibility for the most radical environmentalists, who I think are just neo-pagans, worshiping Mother Earth and ready to go back to the whole human sacrifice thing to appease the gods, I think the chilling answer is that some of the most radical folks pushing for reimagining, re-engineering our economies have in view drastically reducing, I mean dramatically reducing Earth's population. And they'll be able to do it if we're dependent on them for food and electricity on a daily basis, except by God's intervention, which again, going back to Exodus, he has intervened before 
on behalf of his people. We should hope and pray that he will, if that ends up being what comes next, we should hope that he does intervene on behalf of his people again to protect us, to provide for us, for his name's sake. We should pray in that regard, and we should be expectant. Now, I've got one more current events type story to talk with you about, and then a word or two about something I want to get into in our next episode. So I was doing some research this morning, and I was just curious, what percentage of American households have eight children? You know, I talked in our last episode about a Texas lawmaker putting forward proposing uh, legislation for the state of Texas that would see property taxes brought to 0% for households where there's a mother and a father who are married to one another. They've only ever been married to each other unless one of them was a widow or a widower and they remarried. And if they have 10 or more children, they will pay no property taxes provided those children were born after the man and his wife married. As I said in yesterday's episode, I think it's a great idea. I think that's a fantastic idea. I think that's a battle to fight. Pick your battles. I say pick that one. Pick that kind of a battle if we want to see things turn around and go in a good direction again for the United States of America. And given that this is where I live, this is where my friends and family for the most part live, we should want that. I mean, we should hope for that. We should pray for that. If it doesn't come to pass, then we trust that the Lord knows what's best. But again, I was thinking to myself this morning, I wonder how many households in America actually have eight children the way that mine has eight children. My wife and I got married, then proceeded to have these children and we homeschool and I'm the sole breadwinner. And I think to myself, if Colorado keeps on trying to go after gun rights and they keep undermining their own power grid and they keep having problems with something as basic as water and food prices and the affordability of housing, maybe Texas, right? Maybe Texas. We'll see. May marks 11 years that I've worked in oil and gas. So I've got quite a lot of oil and gas experience. I've been hit up by recruiters here in the last couple of days for an opportunity with a oil and gas company down in Houston or based in Houston. I had another call from my brother the other day about a potential opportunity in South Texas, which I'm not too keen on. It would be more of a technician role as I understand it. So if that doesn't turn into any further conversation, I'm good with that. But you know, I've got the RMGO legislative briefing sheet here on my desk talking about the revived plans that leftists have been holding near and dear to their hearts for decades in the U.S., embodied in legislation that they are drafting, debating, putting forward, likely to vote on, likely to pass, likely to get signed by the governor of Colorado that would expand red flag laws, uh, who can file them, raise the minimum age to purchase and possess a firearm to 21, institute a 10-day waiting period on all firearm purchases, ban so-called ghost guns, 
which I think all guns should be ghost guns. You don't need to serialize firearms. That's an infringement on the Second Amendment. Expand the authority of county commissioners to restrict firearm use in rural areas on rural private property to where your county could just decide that even if you live out in the middle of the sticks, you're not allowed to go out and do target practice in your backyard. That's that's what is being proposed and what Democrats in Colorado are likely going to put into state law. That is definitely an infringement on our Second Amendment rights. Absolutely is. They also have something they're calling the Mass Shooting Prevention Act. It would put, according to RMGO, California's ban to shame, and it would put all gun dealers at risk. The big idea would be to try and drive licensed firearm dealers out of the state of Colorado, driving them to Wyoming or Nebraska or Kansas, but not here because the liabilities on somebody selling you a firearm would be so high if you went out and committed a crime with it that it would bankrupt them. It would effectively ban this legislative agenda of the Democrats in Colorado. It would effectively ban all semi-auto rifles above a 22, all AR pistols, many semi-automatic handguns, most semi-automatic shotguns. And I look at that and I think, well, maybe if Texas wants to be very friendly to large conservative homeschooling families like mine, <laughs> as, you know, Lord, what would you have us do? But I did some research this morning as I was just curious what percentage of American families today have eight children. How small a percentage would this potentially be right now versus, you know, if it incentivizes, you know, if there are Americans who would say, you know, we've been thinking about having more kids. This would make it more affordable if they're encouraged, if they have more disposable income that they can keep to provide for their family. Does that change the math for them? You know, here I am, a father of eight, and I'm thinking, yeah, just a, a couple more kids. We could move to Texas and have no property taxes if this law goes through, if the proposed legislation is enacted, which I think would be just brilliant. I think it'd be, even if we don't move to Texas, which I'm not saying we will, not saying we won't either, but even if we didn't, I would still find it brilliant. I would love to see it everywhere. Here's the thing. When I tried to do some research on how many families have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 kids in the US, I'm not finding any stats. I mean, they might be out there. Maybe somebody knows. I'm sure God knows, but humanly speaking, maybe somebody's keeping track of that. But what I did find was an article from qz.com, Quartz, The Decline of the Large U.S. Family in Charts, filed under Things Change, (laughs) published October 11th, 2017, by Efrat Livni and Dan Kopf. The featured image at the top is Will and Jada Pinkett Smith and their son and their daughter at some movie premiere, all dressed up looking very wealthy, very confident, smiling, or else striking a pose in some other fashion. Very fashionable. Underneath the picture, 
It reads, the Smiths are a typical American family in one way at least. No, they're typical in a lot of ways. She is going to try and control him. Also, they had an open marriage for a number of years. I don't recall whether they still have an open marriage, but they thought that was no big deal. Also, they bragged about it like, hey, this is the way that more marriages should be, just open marriages. Then he got in huge trouble for slapping Chris Rock for a relatively minor, comparatively speaking, uh, slight of Jada, as you know, I'm sure, over her Lupicia. So her not having any hair, her being shaved bald, that's not okay to poke fun at for a comedian who does that all the time, makes fun of things all the time. That's his job is to make fun. But if they're a typical American family, ooh, man, there's a lot of problems and where to start. Y'all need Jesus. But this article, it's got a graph, an infographic, maybe you might say, because there's info here and it's a graph. So in that case, shouldn't every graph be an infographic? I digress. The number of her own children currently in a 40-year-old woman's household, 1850 to 2015. I'm looking at this, and from 1850 to 1970, there were households with 40-year-old women who had seven, eight, nine-plus children. You go back to 1850, and it's a sizable number. It's a significant number of households that had nine plus, eight, seven, six. Actually, it was fairly even. It was fairly even the number of households in which a 40-year-old woman had one, two, three, four children, five children. You see a little bit of a dip and then six and seven, not much less than households with five, eight children in a household, a little bit less, nine plus not so much below seven. It was much more even. There were big families. There were about as many big families in 1850 as there were families with one, two, three, four children, five children. 1970 is the last decade where this graph is showing numbers in which you have a recognizable, noticeable amount with eight or nine plus I suppose you could say eight plus children. 1980, 90, 2000, 2010, 2015, it doesn't even show up. It doesn't even register. That's how small the number of households. That's that's how few households in America had so many kids. 1980, you see a little bit, just, just a few, very, very small, barely noticeable, who have seven. 1990, half again decreased half as many as in 1980, 2000, 2010, 2015, none. Six, very few. Five, a little more. Four, that's about as big as most so-called large families get in the U.S. I have eight, which is double that. And I'm not saying that everybody should have eight kids. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it concerns me, it worries me, about the future of our country, that large families like mine are statistically invisible. That's how few there are. It worries me that households with no kids are the second largest 
on this graph from 2015, exceeded only by households with two kids. There are more households with zero kids in them than there are with even one kid. I think that's concerning. I think it's concerning about our priorities and where we're storing up treasure for ourselves and whether we're trusting God for our daily bread or whether we're trusting popular opinion for our daily bread or the approval of the intelligentsia and the experts and the mainstream culture and our co-workers, neighbors. Some thoughts here. When Israel is brought out of Egypt, they are a multitude. While they're in Egypt for 430 years, they greatly increase. They have big families to the point that Egypt is afraid of them. Pharaoh is afraid of them. The Egyptians are afraid of them. They have so many children and they're not posing a threat to the Egyptians. But the Egyptians are thinking, if you ever did, if this ever went sideways, if some enemy invaded, what if you joined the enemy? Then we would be ruined. Precisely what Pharaoh and the Egyptians did to the Israelites or endeavored to do to the Israelites to protect themselves against that possibility is what, apart from absolutes, leftists in the U.S., progressives in the U.S., the godless here in the U.S. and around the world, I think, have been very subtly trying to do in various ways and means for the past century. They don't want to have enough kids of their own to keep up, so they have the public schools where they're going to take everybody else's kids and train them up in the way that they should not go and then send them back home. They don't want to have to deal with them after that. But also, at the same time, they don't want big conservative homeschooling families like mine, big Christian families like mine, competing with their ideology in the years and decades to come. They're afraid of it, and they should be afraid. By God's grace, we win, they lose. You know, my friend J.P. Chavez, Two Houses Down, he sent me this great podcast, and I want to get into it in our next episode, talking about the themes here. But there's this great interview back and forth between Al Mohler and the author of a book about Ronald Reagan called The Peacemaker. When Reagan said, we win, they lose, that was his summary for the strategy to the Cold War with him at the helm. When he said that, it shocked and appalled the moderates in both parties here in the U.S. and around the world. Even if they were ostensibly opposed to communism and the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union's globalist ambitions, they had just accepted that this is the way it's always going to be. There's nothing that can be done about it. We want to maintain the status quo. Reagan comes in being well-read, well-informed, understanding the big picture, and he says, no, we win, they lose. When he gives his, spam, his famous uh, speech in Berlin, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, his advisors and his speechwriter had talked with him on the front end before going into that speech, and they thought they had agreed. They thought that they had gotten him to commit to not including that line. And then he surprised them, shocked them, probably horrified them, infuriated them all when he said it anyways, because he was the president. 
Here's what I say as the father of eight, husband to a wife who's homeschooling those eight children, seven sons, one daughter. By God's grace, we win, they lose. That's the big idea. And we might start acting like it. We might start thinking like it, expectant that if the world stands, we should hope and pray for the fulfillment of Micah 6, 8, that that would mark our expression of Christian faith, not just in private, but publicly, as a people, as a nation, that that would set us apart so that God would bless us, that he would heal our land. That should be our goal, friends, provided the world stands. And if it doesn't, if the world doesn't stand, or if we don't see that in our lifetime, it's if it's not for centuries that God delivers us, it's at least something to do and keep busy with in the meantime. Unless somebody's got a better idea, let's hear it. But like I said, I want to talk about that more in our next episode. Unpack that. There's a book I want to read now. <laughs> the Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. William Inbaden is the author. Also, I want to talk with you about B.H. Liddell Hart's Scipio Africanus, Greater Than Napoleon. I just finished that one up. It was fantastic. It was really, really good. Very interesting. I'm not going to tell you all about it in this episode because we've used up all our time, but I will tell you about it here shortly. And I think you'll be very interested to know about it and to check that one out yourself. It's not a long one, but it's a good one. Now, lastly, another word, a quick update on the recent change where I have put podcast episodes into the subscriber-only category. Our next episode, I intend to put into that subscriber-only category. So if you want to hear it when it very first comes out, you might listen up to how to go and subscribe. So if you go to Anchor FM or Spotify, you will see the about for this podcast includes a link that you can follow. And for 99 cents a month, it's not much. It's just a gesture. Think of it that way. It's a gesture of your appreciation for this podcast. You are, if you sign up, contributing to my being able to pay the costs associated with this podcast. It shouldn't break the bank. You can go and you can subscribe. And I hear that it is a little bit complicated. So I modified and I adjusted it from when I first told you about it, from when I first activated this on Anchor. But you should be able to follow that link, get subscribed. You may have to listen to the subscriber-only podcast episodes on Anchor FM or on Spotify. But that is to say, they will be available. You might just check out over there the ones that are marked subscriber-only. There's 192 that I've put into that category, the most popular ones. I've put into that category. I'm still going to be putting out episodes like this one that you don't have to be subscribed in order to hear and to listen to. And if you're good at quick math, you'll know 571 minus 192. That's roughly 380 episodes that you can still listen to without a subscription. If there's a backlog of episodes you haven't gotten to for quite some time, you can go back if you don't want to pay a dollar a month. But if you're listening to a lot of this podcast, then I think you just pay the 99 cents. It's not going to, I feel bad. I feel bad saying this, but then I think the reasons 
for it being a good idea outweigh the reasons to feel bad. So I'm not going to let feeling a little bit apologetic stop me. <laughs> there are costs. And like I said, I got eight kids. I have eight kids to feed and clothe and house, plus my wife and I. And so a dollar a month would be super and it would encourage me. But like I said, I got to run. That's all for this episode. Do check out, do check out some of these links I'm going to put in the description for this podcast episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.